Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we're going to be looking at the doxology or the ending of this letter to the church in Rome, and that can be found on page 951. And you're going to want to have your Bibles handy because we're going to be looking at several different passages um, in, this, in this letter as we walk through really what is the heart of Christianity. And I think it's appropriate that we consider what Christianity is about, right? We talk about a, a God being born to a virgin in Bethlehem, but then you have to ask the question, why does that matter? And I shared with you a moment ago that there is a birth in a stable and then there's a cross. That the life of Jesus is one marked by humility, marked with a purpose. And we're going to be looking at what it looks like for us to prepare for our King. We've been looking at that and different aspects of that. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at, if you're looking at the bulletin, preparing for our king as it relates to obedience. If the king of all creation has shown up and he said, follow me, what does that require of us? Because when God speaks, something has to happen. If the one who has all the authority in the entire cosmos says to you, get up, it would be good to get up. It'd be good to follow him. It would be good for you, not just because he's going to smite you, but in fact, he knows you so well that it is good for you to follow him, that he loves you and that he cares for you and that he knows what's best for you because he made you. And so we're going to be looking at what is considered the very heart of Christianity this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what does it mean to be obedient and particularly a phrase that Paul uses at the end of his letter that we're going to be reading now. So follow along with me. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. This is how Paul ends this magisterial letter. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed to the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And this phrase that I want us to consider is obedience of faith. And this in, within theological circles is, is a point of much debate. And so we're going to just walk through the book of Romans, the, the first half. We're not going to be looking through the second half. But to consider what this means, this obedience of faith, because Paul uses it again. So this is where the flipping begins. Romans chapter 1. And, and, in, and in case you're wondering, uh, these letters that Paul writes, and in fact, letter, the letter that James wrote, uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and, and John, the, the three letters of John, they aren't just kind of he's sitting around like, oh, I think I'm just going to mention this, and I'm going to mention this, and yeah, I better say that too. No, he's not doing that when he's writing a letter. Because papyri are very hard to come by, you have to think through what you're writing. And so what you see at the end of the letter of Romans is what he began with in the beginning of Romans. So read with me verses 1, 1 through 6. He says, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel or the good news of God, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets, he mentioned that at the end, right, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was descended, or I'm sorry, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so then Paul goes on throughout chapter 1, and then we're going to be looking at little high points. If you were looking at a, a mountain range, we're going to be looking at these high points, and I'm going to be telling you where I'm at so you can follow along, track with Paul's theology. So if you want to understand Paul's theology in the book of Romans for the first eight chapters, here we go. So this is, this is his, his preamble or the, the introduction to what he's getting ready to say in the rest of the letter. And he says, I am telling you all these things that God has been faithful in times past to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the glory of God. And so then he outlines what this gospel or what this good news is because you might want to know what the good news of Jesus Christ is. And so he goes through defining what that is. And he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. Why? Verse 16, you might be familiar with this. He says, for I am not ashamed of this gospel, this good news, for because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also um, to the Greek. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is a declaration of what God has done. This is something, this is a gospel, a good news that God Himself have, has produced. And our response to it, that is how this shakes out, is that the, the good news is what God has done outside of us, and then our response to that good news. And so then we have to say, okay, Paul's not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God. Well, what is this power that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about a righteousness by faith. A righteousness that comes out of. It is a faith that produces a righteousness. A righteousness that you and I can't stir up no matter how good we think we are. It is antithetical to the way that you and I are naturally prone to live our lives and to think that Christianity is about me trying to get my stuff together so that God loves me. God has to speak outside of our human tendencies in our own heart to clean ourselves up because that is what we want to do. We want to fix ourselves. And the gospel says we have to declare to you God has done something for you. That is the power to, to strip away your ability to save yourself. And so then he contrasts God's righteousness that's been revealed in these last days with all of the immorality around them, all of the idolaters around them, right? He goes through that in, in verses uh, 18 and following through the rest of chapter 1. And then chapter 2, this is what he says to those who received God's commands, namely the Jews. He says in, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore you, speaking to the Jews who have God's Word, God's people, 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges or condemns someone else for what they've done. For in passing judgment or condemning another person, when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things that you're judging and condemning other people for. We know that the judgment of God, that, that which stands over us and outside of us, the judgment of God that judges all flesh, rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he says that you also practice the same things that you condemn somebody else for doing. Lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, hating. Every single one of us, Greek or Gentile, those who aren't Jews, and Jews, fall under the wrath of God because of our actions being contrary to God's purposes for us. And if you're interacting with me in your brain, you're thinking, what is God's purpose for me? God's purpose for you, very simply put, is to reflect the actions of your Maker. That's what He intended from way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden is that they would look and act and talk like God Himself. And that didn't go so well. And so then, what needs to happen? Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. He says, He will render to each one of us according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking... And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. And so in those quiet moments when you look at your own life and you say, my actions aren't lining up with what I say I believe, that conscience that God has graciously given you is meant to pull you back towards Him and towards His glorious purpose to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And then you might be saying, well, I don't know what I should do, right? And so then we move for, keep moving forward to kind of lay out what Paul is getting at and in, in, uh, how Paul responds to this. He says, well, what am I going to do? Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Somebody said, well, we had the Bible and that didn't work out very well for us. He says, well, what advantage then has the Jew? He says, or what is the value of circumcision, the sign of the covenant? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles, the teachings, the scriptures of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Do you see how Paul is starting to layer on his argument? He's saying, huh, those who had God's word didn't do God's word. So it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of teaching. It's not a matter of possession of something you and I can have. But it has to be something that God has to do outside of us to change us from the inside out. See, Paul is saying that their disobedience is on them. Their faithlessness is on them. So God has to break through. And I want you to notice the outside of us imagery. This outside of us. And again, I'm painting this picture of what Paul is talking about. What is this faith that he talks about? This is, this is where we're going here. 
right? This obedience of faith. What is this faith that he is seeking to have produce within us an obedience to the, to the maker? Because otherwise we'll just have ourselves a slave master like every other non-believing person. So then he says in verses 21 through 26, again, another highlight that you may be familiar with if you're familiar with Scripture, is verse 21 in chapter 3 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward in front of each one of us to behold, right? In front of us, put forward as a propitiation or a a payment by His blood to be received Outside of us to be received. This is a gift, right? At Christmas time, this is great. This is a great Christmas passage that God has given you and I a gift out of His grace, and He's offering it to you. And He says, Will you take it? I'm offering it to you outside of you. It was to do what? To show His righteousness at the present time. Why? So that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is no boasting at the bar of God. There is no boasting in front of God's judgment seat. There is no way of saying, look at what I've done compared to what my neighbor has done. Each one of us has to be laid bare before God Himself, and our works will be made manifest. And each one of us has to Declare the righteousness of another on our behalf. But then Paul goes on to the very heart of the Jewish religion when he reaches back to the beginning of that Jewish religion, right? Because the Jew may say, well, what about Abraham? I mean, Abraham was a pretty awesome guy, right? So, So Paul says, yeah, this is the way it was from the very beginning, is what Paul's arguing in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I told you we were going to be walking through rather quickly, so... He says this, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Let's go ahead and get to the next verse too. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, even the ungodly one's faith, his faith is counted as righteousness just like Father Abraham. And then verse 16 of chapter 4, that is why it, speaking about Our lives depends on faith. Salvation depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, not on works. 
and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of Jew and Gentile. Paul is laying this out for each one of us because our human tendency, I feel it in my own life when I mess up royally, I feel this tendency, i got to get my stuff together. And I know you do as well because each one of us do that. And Paul is at pains to walk line by line to say that it is a righteousness based on faith in another's righteousness, not on what you have done, but on who you have believed. And until we get this into our hearts, we're going to continue to try to judge and condemn other people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God because it has to get rooted in our own hearts so that it begins to manifest fruit in our own lives and not so we can look across our, over our shoulder and say, yeah, but what about that one? So then Paul concludes in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since you and I have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this gift, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so why do we need this grace? Because you and I need forgiveness. And this is the beautiful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for everyone who is struggling with sin this morning. Everyone who feels outside of God's grace. He says this, for while you and I were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If that's how you came into the family of God as a sinner, why do we start to change the narrative and say, man, I must be outside of God's grace and His love? He says he freely gives that as a gift because, why? Because what we just said, that the righteousness is something that's manifested apart from works of the law. And so then the question, our own human hearts are wrestling here, right? The question comes up then, well, if God loves me for who I am, then I can do whatever I want and God will forgive me. God will just keep on forgiving me because I'm going to keep on sinning. He, Paul, Paul understands the human tendency that you and I have. And he says this in chapter 6, verses 1-4. through He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He doesn't say because, because you owe something to God now. He doesn't, he doesn't say, God loves you so much, he died for you, what you going to give to him? He says, how can you who died to sin still live in it? It's, it's, an, it's incomprehensible that if you died to the life of sin, that you could live in it anymore. 
He says, do you not know, verse 3, that all of us, every single one of us, even the guy standing right here, all of us have been baptized into Christ. Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the glorious news of verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign This is king language. Let it therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And even as I was preparing this sermon, I felt in my own heart this tendency to be like, well, that sounds really dandy, except do you know what happened? (laughs) Do you know what I did that nobody knows? Chapter 7 is a great encouragement to those who struggle with sin on the inside because chapter 7 gives us what the real problem is And I wish I could read the whole thing, but I might start crying. See, the real problem is not what you are doing, but it's who you are on the inside. It's an internal gut, heart problem. The law, which is holy, righteous, and good because it flows from God's very character... The law stirs up the pot of our own souls and stirs it up and it rises to the, to the top and it says, you and I have got a heart problem. It manifests itself as self-doubt, self-righteousness, insecurity, all of these things. That's a manifestation of this pot that's been stirred up by these very words to say, yeah, but my heart feels so wicked. Like when a parent tells a child not to do something and they do it anyway. And like, in, like a boss tells a, his, his worker to do something and he doesn't want to do it. Or he tells him not to do something and he does it. Every single one of us, child to adult, has this tendency within us that stirs up, that rears its ugly head and says, I will be master. I will be king. And then Paul goes through, he says, I want so much to do the things that God tells me to do, but I can't do them. I don't want to do them. And the things that God doesn't want me to do, I want to do them that much more. And so then Paul ends chapter 7. He says, verse 21 of chapter 7, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner soul, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, knowing what's right, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who? And the answer is not to try to fix yourself. The answer is not to try to say, I'm going to try harder this year. Verse 25, 
thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then when you and I are tempted to think that you're ruined, you're damaged goods because of decisions that you've made, look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now he's getting to what obedience looks like. The great call of Advent has been to prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. To trim the wicks of your own heart. To fill your oil lamps. To turn off the path of living for your own pleasure. And turn to the narrower and more difficult path that leads to open fields of joy and beauty. See, each one of us have offended God by our disregard for His ways. Even this afternoon, we'll disregard His ways. Like Israel, we more often than not think that we know better than God and how He ought to run His world and how He ought to script out our life. So, maybe if you're Self-reflective for a moment with me. That's why you and I yell at other people. Because they're not bending to our will. Maybe that's why we give other people, if you're not prone to yell, the silent treatment. Because we are going to coerce them, strong-arm them, be mad at them until they repent enough and do what we want them to do. Maybe that's why you and I envy other people, because they get what I deserve. And I don't seem to get to enjoy all the stuff that they've got. And we think that God is mean because He's withholding it from us. We don't do the slow work of spiritual disciplines because the tantalizing entertainment of our day and instant gratification is at our fingertips. Perhaps we are prone to guarding our me time because we're afraid we'll get burned out on serving too much. And perhaps we don't dream and throw ourselves into the great cause of the gospel for others because we've grown cynical or skeptical that it matters at all. See, the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ is that whoever you are and wherever you have failed, God flings wide His arms and says, you are welcome here. And this is where the aspect of obedience of faith comes in. An obedience that is produced by faith, that is flowing from faith. This is where it comes in. Because faith is not some kind of amorphous type thing. Like, you just got to have faith. No, you always put your faith in something or someone. Always. Whether it's yourself, whether it's some kind of wish dream out here, 
But you're always putting your faith in something. And so Romans 9 through 11, I'm not going to read through all of that, but Romans 9 through 11 tells us that God is faithful to His promises, to keep His promises, and is actively involved in our lives to bring about what He began. And then chapters 12 through 15 explain what this obedience ought to look like. And I would encourage you, strongly encourage you, this afternoon or tomorrow for Christmas, open this Christmas present, Romans 12 through 15, to consider what does obedience of faith look like in real time. And then I would encourage you as you read Romans 12 through 15 to write down what's challenging for you from these chapters. What is really hard for you to do? That God says, I have given you a new life to be able to do these things and say, Lord, I, I, I'm real, it's really hard for me to do A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. <laughs> Lord, will you help me? Will you help me to reflect how you are? And then ask God to grow your heart to want it. See, we plant and we water. That is part of the Christian life. It's not just like, hey, God said he's going to do it all, so I just got to sit here and wait. And he says, you plant, you water, but God gives the growth. And if you're looking uh, for a pithy statement that you can write down, faith that saves you is a faith that changes you. Saving faith will always change you from the inside. And so it's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus, but it's another thing to actually be changed. And until that takes root in your heart to, can, to reflect on what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, it will not produce the good fruit that he, he speaks about in 12 through 15. Faith that saves you is a faith that changes you. And so how do we respond? And this is where we'll end. I've got four ways that we can respond to this this amazing good news of Jesus Christ. As uh, Sister Angelica, I don't know if you are familiar with Sister Angelica. She's a very uh, firebrand nun back in the day. I think she's passed away since. Uh, but she asked this. She goes, in all of your hurriedness to get presents for everybody on your list, what will you give Jesus this year? Your sin? Your sorrow? Your heart, your mind, your will, how about your whole self? And so one way to respond is to submit to God, body, soul, and spirit. And say, you don't have to know exactly what that looks like, but you can say, Lord, I don't know what it looks like to submit to you, but I know that it is good for me to submit to you, Lord, Show me your ways, and whatever you say, I will do, and wherever you say to go, I will go, to submit your whole life to God. As famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said, he says, the obedience of faith springs from a principle within. It has to come from our heart and not from a compulsion without. No one's forcing anyone to obey, but God wants to stir in your own heart, to give you a new heart, to give you new taste buds, to say, God's word is sweet to me now because I have submitted to God's ways and I can see that he is good even though I don't understand it. But then secondly, not only to submit to God, but secondly, to commit to community. The word here, obedience, uh, technically 
means to abundantly hear. To hear over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is what this word means. And so, as I was thinking through, okay, how do we respond to this great obedience of faith that Jesus has done for us in the good news of the gospel? I would encourage you to place yourself where you can consistently hear God's word explained and applied. Even when, especially when, it's hard. Our human tendency is to say, I don't want to do it. It, It's hard to go to church. It was hard for me to come to church this morning. Surprise. Maybe it's hard for you on any given Sunday to come to church. But what better place to hear God's word and to say, God, I, I submit to you, now I can hear what it means to submit to you. And this is where, what Paul's talking about in chapter 15 at the end there in, in verse 32. He says, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Commit to community. Not just because it's good out there in you know, ephemeral world, but because it's good for in here to be refreshed, your spirit to be refreshed, even when you don't want it, and especially when you don't want it. Thirdly, not only to submit to God, to commit to community, but also to devote yourself to theology. Paul didn't launch into chapters 12 through 15 to what obedience to the king looks like, did he? He spent 11 chapters... 11 chapters explaining how God is faithful and has been faithful from times past with the prophets and the writings. And he was familiar with the writings. And then it lifts up his heart and his soul and to say, how could I not want to follow this king? He rehearsed a treasure trove of salvation history. And so then, my friend, if you are bored with your faith, if you're finding yourself saying, ah, I really don't want to read the Bible, Grab yourself a good systematic theology. You didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe C.S. Lewis might be an encouragement. Here, this is, this is a quote that I love that, that he said. He says, For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal theology books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. He's talking about, you know, and that, that's just not to disparage devotional books at all, right? But he's, but he's saying for himself, he finds much more devotion in those doctrine theology books, and I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Grab yourself A good systematic theology. And if you don't have one, ask me. I will give you one. I promise I will. I'll give you a $50 systematic theology if you promise to read it. If you promise to read it. And then I'll ask you for a book report afterwards. And maybe I'll let you borrow a pipe. I don't know. Definitely give you a pencil. But devote yourself to theology. If, if you find yourself bored in your faith, man, just sit down and look at, look at all of this that God has done, how faithful He is. Yes, He's got you. He's got all your junk. 
He's got all of your questions, all your problems, all your fears, all the stuff that you're handling right now. Just turn a page. Look, there's Esther right there. She had some issues. She had some problems, didn't she? Job, (laughs) Psalms. Like, it's replete with God's faithfulness to his people. That is what good theology will get you. It's, like, it's not just like, hey, I don't really feel it. No, get in there and see how God, time and time again, has drawn near to those who draw near to him. And then finally, act on your faith. Act on your faith. Put feet to your faith. In fact, what he says in chapter 15, verse 30, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me, to strive together with him. No longer be spectators only, but be participants with God. In chapter 16, then, is a recounting of all those who made it possible for Paul to even do this ministry. He mentions Phoebe, a patron of many. She gave financially to the ministry, and she gave it overflowing. And then Prisca and Aquila, fellow laborers who risked their neck, who risked their neck for, his, for, for Paul's life. Mary, who worked hard for you. Andronicus and Julia, fellow prisoners. Act out on your faith. And if you find your faith is flagging, act out on the little faith that you have. And it will grow. See, our world is constantly encouraging you and me to just be consumers and to be entertained. To be observers. To be afraid that you won't do it right, so sit down. But we read in Proverbs that the righteous are as bold as a lion. And so then the question becomes, where does this strength to be as bold as a lion come when you feel so weak and frail? He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. And then he ends with, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. When you and I begin to realize that our obedience is not just a matter of us getting our stuff together, but it is a beautiful picture of this glorious manifold witness of God's glory, then we begin to see, wow, I can be swept up into that glory as opposed to it just being about me and my problems. You and your problems are not the only story, but that this is all part of God's great unfolding narrative for what he wants to do in the entire world. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift, for the free gift of eternal life that is given to us in Christ Jesus. For you have done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by condemning sin in the flesh, by sending your Son Jesus to Be obedient when we oftentimes are faithless. You have shown yourself faithful and true. God, we confess that during this Christmas season, we want to have a fresh encounter with you. God, where we feel weak and frail, we need you to come and give strength to our bones, and we know know that in and of ourselves we cannot do it. And so we ask you to help us to do this. For your namesake we pray. Amen.